0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Manchester Historian Podcast. Make sure to be following the Manchester Historian on all of our social media. That's Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to keep up with all
1: of our news.
0: Hello, I'm Will Kenning and welcome to the Manchester Historian Podcast. In 1978, Edward Said released his profoundly influential and controversial work, Orientalism, a book which investigated the captivating relationship between the Occident and the Orient, between East and West, in literature, culture, and politics. orientalism is credited with helping to change the direction of several disciplines, exposing an unholy alliance between the Enlightenment and colonialism, and its relevance in historical discourse is vital in any post-colonial study. Today we're joined by Marco Drybra, a second-year student of history and Arabic, whose article, Bringing the Orient Home, features in issue 32, Religion, Culture, and Environment, so be sure to find it online on issue. Thank you for joining us, Marco. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off just by asking, when did you become acquainted with Edward Said and Orientalism?
1: So I first heard about Edward Said maybe t- two or three years ago when I was sort of on my gap year and I got quite interested in sort of debates on Islam and um, sort of, you know, its role in the West and sort of on on Western ideas of Islam, um, you know. and. So I first heard about it sort of in passing because a lot of the critiques of the things that I was reading, you know, about Dawkins or or Sam Harris and you know these sort of like kind of slightly more kind of right-wing um critiques of Islam. Um a lot of the charges a lot of the charges made against these sorts of people were that you know you're this is an orientalist discourse, this is you know this is wrong, these are just Stereotypes. You're dealing in misinformation here, and that kind of got me thinking. Like, you know, Orientalism, a word that came up loads. You know, in this kind of discourse, and you know, I, I did, I didn't actually read the book until my first year here, um, when I did a module on the history and politics of the of the Middle East and North Africa. where an entire week was basically just spent talking about Orientalism and you know, how it was, how it manifests itself in Western scholarship even now, especially, you know, um, and even now and even more so um, in the past. Yeah. I
0: guess as a student of um, history and Arabic, it's quite a key, key thing to focus on.
1: Yeah. It is really interesting because a lot of the history I do in Manchester, you know, like have been exposed to as a as a history student is necessarily from a western perspective and like of course like history now by and large is a lot more self-aware than it was you know in the Victorian times and the and the, because largely because of Edward Said people sort of have are a lot more aware of orientalism and how one avoids being orientalist and to like give each culture their own sort of, you know, to respect each culture and not like trivialise them or essentialise them. But it's a thing you still see a lot of today in a lot of Western history. Yeah, um, it, it's
0: such a pervasive topic in the humanities, you know, whether it's in the actual practice of the, you know, the subject or in investigations of the subject. But you know, either way, it's enlightening to any student of colonial history. It's also a really challenging topic to get to grips with. And, you know, as you've written an article for us, I was hoping that maybe you could just give us a basic highlight of the you know, the key premises of Orientalism from Edward Said's text.
1: Yeah. So it's quite a hard thing, like it's quite a complex I idea to really like pin down to a few key tenets, but I'll give it a go. Like Edward Said basically rests the whole concept on Foucauldian sort of ideas on power and how basically power operates not just in a political sense, but in a cultural sense and like a a spatial one. So the idea in Orientalism is that um, through scholarly Practices and a concerted study of, you know, the Orient, in quotation marks. This was a way, and still is a way, um, to exercise colonial power. Um, so he I, he identifies the start of colonialism with the Napoleonic invasion of of Egypt, right? And um, what's quite interesting is is That Napoleon was one of the first conquerors or invaders to basically take with him um, scholars whose express purpose was to study the land they were conquering in a way to sort of a inform the colonial practice but then also like to learn more about the cultures they were conquering and so this basically, so Orientalism with its history, basically it's about the stereotypes and the sort of essentializing that premised a lot of discussions, that premised a lot of Western discussions on the Orient. So it's the study of how accepted fundamental truths about other people or other cultures are used to like, inform and provide the foundation for sort of epic theories based on, you know, the supremacy of one culture o- over another. And nowhere is this more clear than in sort of Western, you know, um, Western perception of, Western perceptions of Islam, for, for example, is probably the most p- sort of pertinent example to... Examine because you have here a lot of Western scholars throughout history, but even now, right? You know, this is the thing we see a lot of in the newspapers, in the arguments, again, to mention Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and all these sorts of people. Like, this idea that, you know, there is an essential element of Eastern cultures, i.e., islam that is fundamentally backward or fundamentally like this or fundamentally like that right and this is premised and this is used as a premise to um, justify all sorts of things or to make criticisms on the culture at large and all these sorts of things so as you highlight
0: it's more of a methodology and you know an approach to understanding relations rather than a key form you know of factors it's a way of understanding relationships and In your article, you examine how the Orient was manifested in a form of fascination with Oriental culture, you know, the relationship between Britain and the Orient, that relationship. Could you then provide us with a few examples of how the Oriental became a vital element of lay Victorian high culture?
1: Yeah, Um, it's quite interesting as well because any student at a university level of the history of the British Empire, should probably be aware of this, you know, this is a big debate in the historiography between how aware was the British population of empire, right? For them, was it part of their sort of everyday life? Did they, you know, drink the tea and go to the fairs and all these things? Or was it by and large only the sort of the realm of the, Educated sort of merchant class who were engaged actively with the empire. So, in this sort of, on this debate, I, I come down sort of more towards the idea that because Oriental material, and by that I mean material created by the West about the Orient, but also imports from the East, such as tea, and, you know, spice and all these things, they, I think, did reach a lot of the British population and formed quite sort of quite an interesting part of of Victorian culture not just Victorian high culture that you have in literature and stuff like these but like even in Victorian consumerist culture so for example you have on the packet you know on packets of tea for example you have depictions of Oriental workers in China or India you know working in these big plantations and of course it's not actually the, the the reality you don't see you know all this all the slave drivers and the privation and the inequalities and just barbarity you see sort of this big rosy picture of everyone working harmoniously on you know under the yoke of the white man um which is quite interesting but these ideas did form um You know, so consumerist culture did form a part of British consciousness in this time. As well as the idea, you also had these sort of big fairs, right? You had these world fairs, and this wasn't just in Britain. You had um, these large festivals in Paris as well, for example, where the idea was to showcase France or Britain in all their glory, which included necessarily, you know, the produce of their colonies. So um, there was a famous one, in, you know, in France in the 1840s, I think, where it was basically each colony, like right, had its, like, stall, this fair. So you had an Algerian one, you had, you know, a sort of a bunch of stalls that would emphasise North African goods or you know spices from here or spices from there or you know tea from here and 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 the idea was that you know french culture and this is by and large i think the same in britain as well that the french culture necessarily incorporated these imports and um elements taken from abroad brought back to france right so i think orientalism is this kind of an awareness of the Orient, people would, would would consume what they thought was the Orient, right? It, I think it, at this period of time it was seen as like enriching British or French or basically colonial culture, but in a very particular way where the metropole, the colonial power was still firmly in control and dominant, but enriched by a consumption of produce of the less powerful, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so making the idea of possessing a colony somewhat more palatable yeah. for um, the the publics and the populations of these empires. And you can see that really, you know, with tea, like you said. I find that you know, quite interesting myself, that it's such a key part of British culture
1: and really it's got this incredible history of the growth of capitalism and empire. For sure, um, there's a sort of quite pertinent point that tea is... An essential element of you know what we might think of as Britishness, right? If we were to ask people now, you know, okay, you know what defines being British? You know, a lot of European people and a lot of European people have a joke where you know it's tea at four pm and crumpets. However, we don't grow tea here. We never have. So you know where does this tea come from? Colonialism, and it's 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 a th- it's, it's quite interesting to see how divorced the two things are because. You had maybe, it, it in the Victorian era, like teas, you know, it's links with colonialism and the Orient are almost used as as a marketing tool, right? You know, this, this product is exotic and all this stuff, and now you have, okay, no, it's Yorkshire tea. You're like, eh, okay, is it? You know, you've divorced completely the history of this product and sort of its roots in colonialism and consumption of other people's cultures and then sort of, it's become such a, a facet of British, almost like, you know, without trying to be too dramatic, British I- identity, you know?
0: So while, you know, whilst we've examined that Orientalism managed to pervade from colony, to mass population, it is often most distinct within the artistic representations of the elites in in literature, in poetry, and in art. Are there any interesting stories or examples of how these elite Victorian men, or even women, um, presented themselves through Orientalism and through their understanding of colonies?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So, you have... A phenomenon of like you know what's essentially travel literature right you have these stories of adventurers who would go to you know find Timbuktu or you know to go and explore this region or to explore the Amazon you know these are all instances of sort of these English explorers in a time of co- of colonialism that were basically Trying to explore, and in a way, if you if you were to refer it back to Edward Said, to use this as a way to dominate other cultures, right? There's a lot of politics that comes along with map making, for example. But so a few sort of prominent British or like Orientalists, for example, it like in my article I spoke about Sir Richard Burton, who. Um, he lived maybe like ten or twenty years um in the middle east and but often under the sort of assumed guise of a sufi muslim um and one of the main things he did was write these travel diaries of his experience in the middle east so in in one instance, for example, he travels to Mecca under you know the the rather farcical name of Mirza Abdullah of Bashir, you know, al-Bashiri, which is, is obviously nonsense, but like a lot of what these p- people did was they write about it and send it back home and in an attempt to sort of create this like, almost like Indiana Jones like story, right? Where the, you get the strong Englishman explores the world, you know, against all danger and... Because it's quite entertaining, you know, it's, it's thrilling, right? The idea that you have to cross these hostile lands and you have to pretend to be a certain way and, you know, you need to... And you, and you travel with your, you know, plucky, oriental servants. And, you know, this is, this is a trope that you can see in almost all of this stuff, right? And, like, again, Indiana Jones probably one of the sort of you know, like quintessential examples of this right and that's what produced in the 80s mm. in the 90s maybe which is brilliant and then you know of course travel literature is accompanied a lot of the time by fiction so you have s- stories again like I said in like in my article you have translation of Arab stories such as you know one thousand and one and one nights or alf layla wa layla you know in like in the arabic and these things are again to entertain the population at home but by also to understand as well i think on a slightly deeper level and then the sort of on the one hand is to explain and to entertain, but on a slightly more on a slightly more sinister level, maybe, I think it's kind of a way like the Orient is treated as a space in which the British and other colonial powers as well were able to project you know so so if you just see it as a, almost like a completely like a, a blank slate or not you know not a completely blank slate, but on which certain things were exaggerated, certain things were just completely fabricated. And you have this in the literature, for example, of, um, of Sir Ryder Haggard. You have this in, in, in Robinson Crusoe, in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And like, and with the Heart of Darkness example, I think that one's really interesting because that is still studied as a text in a lot of universities in England and... In the U.S. as well, and you have sort of the, I think you have the author and scholar, sort of Chinua Achebe. Right, and she wrote, well, he wrote a, a fantastic article on basically deconstructing the racism and or an Orientalism in Heart of Darkness because, in in his experience, he'd gone around campuses, it in the US and spoken to people who studied English and he encountered that students would almost they'd come up with these interpretations that absolved Conrad of any racism which if anyone's read the book is is quite a feat right and um, I think a really pertinent sort of like paraphrasing of his is that the Orient was to Britain what the picture of Dorian Gray was to the actual man, right? It's sort of everything bad and rotten and horrible about the the British maybe felt themselves was projected in into this Oriental space, right? So it op- in this way it operates as a foil to British insecurities, like as I said. Like, in my article, sort of, um, the idea that the black man was rendered strong but stupid because a Victorian man was highly, you know, intellectual and well-read. The Indian man was rendered industrious but not inventive. The Chinese man was rendered effeminate. What's really interesting with these sorts of ideas is that, like, you can almost chart them um, using history. So you can, like, say, the Chinese man was only rendered effeminate after the, like, you know, after the Opium Wars. Or like, these are these characterizations and tropes are responses to his, historical events when British conception conceptions of these people needed to change for various political reasons right and what is more potent about orientalism
0: as well is, like you earlier mentioned is that it was commercialised and it was consumed and in that sense it does reify the colonial possession of Mm. the Orient and it had this underlying parallel of British identity on that note how did it play towards gender relations because I know there's these really familiar images of Know, the, the oriental harem and you know of, of eastern decadence and mm. it's almost these sort of uh, gents clubs really for, yeah. to project uh, colonial
1: sexual fantasies. Sure. So with the idea of sort of the representation of women or you know, of a oriental woman a lot of them were sort of seen as like hyper-sexualized, but also dominated and oppressed and so and you yeah, you see you as you mentioned these sort of gents club like people would come back and from you know their time spent abroad and traveling and stuff they they would return and they'd read out these things to their gents club right. And um, of course, a lot of it is exaggeration stuff, but it's a way to play out the fetishization of other people, the sort of patriarchal oppression, also, but like mixed with like hypersexualized, right? This 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 stuff is the stuff of weird fantasies, you know, the the white man who goes and you know and peeks into a harem and sees these, you know, tons of these beautiful ladies who are all nude, like feeding each other grapes and stuff. This is, you know, this is the stuff of weird dreams. But because of the power relations between the colonised and the colonialised, the colonialists, sorry, this stuff is able to make it into the public sphere. Like this is perpetuated through culture. I think this is so a, a lot of this is what edward said draws from foucault is like there's like all this stuff about discourse and power and like orientalism operates in the cultural sphere and the scholarly sphere, sphere mainly right I mean, you know there's people aren't trying to say that colonialism wasn't also p- political and like you know and and materialist maybe but like it also operated in this kind of realm of consumerism and public conceptions or misconceptions. And like I think that's what Edward would say mainly takes f- from Foucault, that power doesn't necessarily need to be exercised in a military way or a political way, but then also operates in a cultural sphere between, you know, in discourse. There's nothing more of an attestment to that, the fact that
0: it's a largely incoherent practice, is that, you know, like you said with the sexual and gender relations, you have this British male fantasy of oriental women, at the same time it's outlawed, you know, miscegenation, intermixed marriages, denial of you know, matrilineal inheritance, all this kind of thing designed to subjugate, and it's an incoherent system of representation and an incoherent relationship, which I think is the most salient point of or you know of orientalism as a methodology is, is it exposes these paradoxes and uh, contradictions what implications did this have for you know britain and its colonies you know how did this play out inside the colonies you've mentioned how it is a system of power
1: mm. and controlling so one thing i didn't really get to touch too much upon in in the article for for, for various reasons was the idea that sort of um, Orientalism helped colonial administration, right? Because this is a point that Edward Said makes. It's like, it's all about power. It's to know a population or to even make that claim, okay, I know Africa, right? I know it in its entirety and this is Africa. You are... What you're doing then is you're essentializing Africa, you're saying that this is one Africa and it is what I think it is, right? And as a colonial power that's an incredibly useful tool to have, right? Because A, you need to have a way to justify to yourself that basically the colonial barbarity of, for example, of slavery, of plantation-based system, just the pure exploitation of colonialism. You need to be able to you'd hope you need to be able to justify this to yourself but one of the easiest ways to do it is okay cool this isn't this isn't a, an issue because this culture is like this anyway or this is like this anyway right um, which is quite interesting so on that sense you have sort of it helps set up um, a psychological defence mechanism um, against the barbarity and sort of Trauma of colonialism that a lot of the colonists were necessarily witness to um, but also it helps to dominate a place if you know about it, right so the politics of maps like these things are an exercise in social control to like to study a culture in this way to try and. Learn about it to try and like figure out what it is. Is for Edward Said, and I think I would ag- agree with this. Actually, is like it's a way to exercise control, but also to permit more control in the future. Right, if, if you know where these things are, you can control them. If you know where people live, you can control you know this sort of stuff. And like it, it I think. In this case, knowledge is power, and it's a thing that's often sort of slightly misunderstood, right? People just think, okay, cool, I'll read books and then, and then run my own company. No, it's more about if you're in power, you a you have you have more chance to know. You can you have the authority to even claim to know a people as as an outsider, but then also in garnering more information about them, you put yourself in a position to perpetuate this domination even more. I think this is at sort of the heart of Orientalism, but also at the heart of just the colonial enterprise as a whole, I think.
0: We've had a great discussion on Orientalism, I feel certainly very enlightened now um, about the practice in itself. and. You, you've we really gone into more depth from your article and I encourage everyone else listening to read this article in our issue 32, Religion, Culture and Environment and once again, thank you for joining us Thank you
1: for having me